Well, that was very wonderful this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you, choir and praise team, for this just wonderful, inspirational music. It's been a great blessing to us this morning. I, I know that I speak for Pastor Hank this morning when I say thank you so much for uh, the Christmas gift and the love that we know comes from behind it. Um, even now, um, Ellen is preparing for uh, her Sunday school class, and uh, she just loves teaching the children here at Bethel, and she loves to lead our Sparks program on Monday night. And whenever she talks about uh, her kids here at Bethel, her face just lights up. And uh, so I'm so thankful for her and her ministry. And I know I speak for Pastor Hank and all of us when I say that Anne has a heart big enough to take in everybody. And we just love her as well and all that she does for us in so many different ways. And so as pastors, we, we know that we're very blessed to serve with uh, the wives that we have. And so... Uh, just thank you for giving us that privilege here at Bethel. We're very, very grateful for it. Well, at Christmas time, we all love to see a nativity scene. And uh, you may know that the word nativity means the occasion of a person's birth. And there's really nothing more exciting than the birth of a baby, is there? And especially uh, the long-awaited birth of Jesus. And as you look at the nativity scene, it just radiates peace and serenity. We think uh, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But there's another side to this scene, isn't there? Jesus was born into a war zone. That's right. In Matthew's account, immediately after the birth of Jesus... Herod attempts to kill the child. While it may have been as much as two years later before he attempted to kill Jesus, the account in Matthew does not emphasize a time lapse. In the flow of the narrative from chapter 1 to chapter 2, immediately after Jesus' birth, Herod attempts to kill him. What a dramatic shift that is. Revelation chapter 12 says that Satan was the one behind Herod's attempt to kill Jesus. In fact, it says in that passage that Satan stood before the woman about to give birth that he might devour her child. And think about how that changes our view of this entire scene. The image of a child sleeping in a manger now becomes a, a war zone. And Christ was born into a war to face battle with the enemy of our souls, Satan himself. Uh, this week I read this statement, and sometimes we don't think about it in this way, but I read this. The entire life of Christ is one of spiritual warfare. From birth, to his cross, to the empty tomb. And that's exactly right. Now why is it that Satan seeks to destroy the baby Jesus right at the point of his birth? It's because he knows the very first prophecy about the coming of Christ. That prophecy is found 
in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read the black print, and I want you to join with me and read the blue print, all right? Here's what the Bible says. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now join me. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This passage was called by the early church leaders, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, the Proto-Evangelium. Proto is the Greek word for first, Evangelium is the Greek word for good news or gospel. So this is the very first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. I want you to think about this this morning. The very first hope of the good news is in a scene where our Savior wins the war. Now there are three stages to every war. There's the declaration of war. There's the hostility of war. And there is the victory of war. All three stages are right here. All three in this very first prophecy. You see, Satan knew that with the birth of Christ, the final stage was set. And what is bad news for Satan is good news for us. Can I hear an amen to that this morning? Absolutely. And that's why the fourth candle in Advent is the candle of joy. This morning, as we look at God's Word together, I just simply want to bring a message on the very first prophecy of the coming of the Savior. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn there, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, and let's examine this prophecy in verses 14 and 15. I invite you to bow with me in prayer for just a moment. Lord, every day that we live in this world, this prophecy is being fulfilled. Not only was Jesus' entire life from His birth all the way to His resurrection, and even, Lord, His enthronement today is in the midst of a war zone on earth that we also every day are facing spiritual warfare with the enemy of our souls. And teach us now why the birth of Jesus Christ at this great season of Christmas is such a cause for joy, for hope, and for peace. In His name, Amen. I want you to notice, first of all, we begin with the declaration of war. The declaration of war. And God declared war on Satan. Look again at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, this is a curse scene. 
And to be cursed in the Bible meant that God was your foe. It meant that He was your enemy. As you read through the book of Genesis, over and over you find there are two key words, blessing and cursing. You know in the very beginning, God blessed Adam and Eve. And to be blessed meant to be in a relationship with God and to enjoy His fruitfulness. It meant to share in His friendship, His goodness, His bounty, and His eternal inheritance. The word cursed, which is the other key word in the book of Genesis, meant to impose a barrier on or to be separated from the blessing that God originally intended. And so it meant to be destined for punishment, for judgment, and for eternal destruction. Here's what happened. Satan had sought to ruin God's blessing, and so he now would receive God's curse. This is graphically portrayed when you put the temptation earlier in chapter 3 next to the curse a little bit later in chapter 3. And notice this fascinating contrast that you see. In verse 1, the serpent, representing Satan, was more crafty. And so now, Satan would be more cursed. Uh, it's very interesting, there is a play on words in the original language in which these two words sound very similar. A crafty comes from the Hebrew word arum, and cursed comes from the Hebrew word arar. And so those two words that are a play on words are teaching us Satan was more deceitful, therefore he would be more cursed. And then notice the second thing. Satan had elevated himself over the first two humans, and so now in the curse, he would crawl beneath them on his belly. He had told the first two earlier in the chapter, verse 5, that it would be fine for them to eat the fruit. And now in the curse, he is told that he will eat the dust. In the ancient writings of the ancient world, eating dust described the lowest form of life. And so think about what was happening. Satan sought to exalt Adam and Eve above God, now he would have the lowest position. And then finally, notice what Satan had said to them. He had lied to them. He said, you will not die. And now he experiences total defeat. In the Bible, eating the dust is an army term that meant to inflict total defeat. Even today, we know when you say to somebody, you're going to eat my dust. We mean, I'll defeat you totally. Now I want you to look with me at this comparison. At each point, God reversed what Satan had done. God became the unrelenting enemy and adversary of our foe, Satan. And all of God's people said this morning, Amen. Amen. God declared war on Satan. Notice, secondly, the hostility of war. 
the hostility of war. In verse 15, the Bible says, God said to the serpent representing Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, enmity in the Bible means to be an adversary or an enemy. And it's very interesting, the tense of the Hebrew word here suggests repeated, long-lasting war that would continue throughout human history. And here's what God is saying. Humans had joined Satan in his war against God. Now he, Satan, would be at war with humans, and that war would last throughout the entire history of humanity. Do you know what this is here? It is the very first teaching in the Bible on spiritual warfare. It began right here in the garden with Satan, and the curse said it would continue throughout our history. What is spiritual warfare really? Well, here are a number of things the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that we face three levels of spiritual warfare. And they are revealed for us right here in verse 15. Number one, there is a war between Satan and humans. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is the very first level of spiritual warfare. Now, think about what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are born with Satan's sinful nature. Jesus said this in John 8:44. He said, "You are of your father the devil, that's the way you are born, and the lusts of your father you will do." And then the Bible teaches us that we are born under the control of Satan. 1 John 5:19 says this, "The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. And then the Bible teaches us that he works and influences us to be disobedient. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, he is described as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. And in all of those ways, the Bible is teaching us that there is a war between Satan and humans. I want you to notice the second level of this. There is a war between non-believers and believers. This is the second level of spiritual warfare. The Bible says here that Satan's offspring would be at war with the woman's offspring. Now, who is Satan's offspring? Well, it is all the demonic world all of the fallen angels that followed him in his original rebellion, but it is as well all non-believers in the world. The Bible teaches us that the woman's offspring represent all those who turn from sin and put their trust in God. You don't have to read very far in the Bible when you begin to see this working out. The very first example comes from Eve's own sons, Abel and Cain. Do you know, if you were to go to Hebrews chapter 11, the great uh, uh, chapter of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, 
Abel is the very first one listed in that chapter. He's listed as the first one who turned from sin and rebellion and believed God's promise. But you also know his brother, Cain, became the very first murderer in the Bible when he murdered his righteous brother. And if we ask the question, why? Why did Cain murder Abel in the very first murder? 1 John 3.12 gives us the answer. Listen to what it says. Cain belonged to the evil one, and he murdered his brother. A fulfillment of this prophecy, Cain, the non-believing offspring of Satan, murdered Abel, the believing offspring of the woman. And here's what the Bible says, that this war between non-believers and believers will continue all the way through history until Jesus comes again. By the way, the Bible teaches we are either in one or the other positions. The Bible says we are either in the kingdom of darkness or we are in the kingdom of God's dear Son. And we are called on to make a choice. To trust in the Savior that Jesus sent, that came from the Father, and was born in the manger so that He might come into this war zone and win the victory for us so that when we trust Him, we join His side in this spiritual battle. It was interesting this week, I looked up uh, this question, what is Christian persecution? And as I thought about this battle going on between non-believers and believers, what is Christian persecution? And there's a, a website by Open Doors uh, USA that tracks this across the world. And I want you to listen to what they have to say Christian persecution is. Christians in areas with severe religious restrictions pay a heavy price for their faith. Beatings, physical torture, confinement, isolation, rape, severe punishment, imprisonment, slavery, discrimination in education and employment, and even death are just a few examples of the persecution they face on a daily basis. By the way, I couldn't help but think about this. Back in October, our missionaries, the wolves from Papua New Guinea, were with us for our missions conference. I'll never forget just a few years ago when they came and, and had the services here on a Sunday morning. And Paul said to us that he wanted us to pray because he said one of the elders of their church in Pawpaw, New Guinea, his wife had recently been raped. And I remember just being stunned by that. I thought to myself, what if that happened here at Bethel? How devastated we would be as a congregation. And what Paul was talking about that day as a missionary of ours on the mission field that happened to the wife of one of his elders 
is this warfare going on between non-believers and believers. Listen to what Open Doors USA continue to say. According to the U.S. Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And then they said this, each month around the world, 322 Christians are killed every month for their faith in Christ. That's over 10 a day. Now, I want you to think with me. What that means for us is that by the time we are done tonight Christmas caroling, 10 of our brothers and sisters around the world will have lost their lives as a result of this spiritual warfare. Satan inspiring non-believers against believers. When I think of that, and realize that Jesus Christ came at Christmas time to deal with that. No wonder for us, this is a season of joy, of hope, and of peace. Now look at the third level. War between nature and humans. War between nature and humans. This is the third level of spiritual warfare. You see, the cursed serpent here is a representative of creatures. And what this meant was chaos would come into nature. As the serpent who represents Satan was cursed, represents all creatures, so this is teaching us that chaos would come into nature as a result of the sin and rebellion of mankind as they followed Satan. Now think about this. This is the reason for hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, cancer, earthquakes, all the things that we deal with in this world of nature. You may remember during the tsunami seven years ago that hit Indonesia, people wanted to know, why did that happen? Why did a loving God uh, allow people who were bathing on the beach and had no idea that da danger was coming to suddenly be swept away, and many of them were never found again? And one pastor was interviewed and asked this question, why did the tsunami happen? Why did God allow that to happen? And you know his answer was? He said, the reason it happened is because of my sin. And you say, what? Your sin caused the tsunami? You weren't even there. But he was exactly right. All of our sin caused the tsunami. I'll never forget when Hurricane Katrina 
one of the greatest that ever hit the United States, destroyed New Orleans, there were emails circulating on the internet that said the reason Katrina hit New Orleans was because their sins were greater than ours and God was finally judging them as one of the most sinful cities in the United States. Did you send out an email like that? No. No. The reason Katrina hit New Orleans and destroyed that city is because of the sin of all of us. Your sin. My sin. As well as the people living in New Orleans. What is God saying to us? Because humans rebelled with Satan against God, nature has now rebelled against us. Since we are in rebellion against God, God's world is now in rebellion against us. We cannot be in rebellion against our Creator and expect that His world is going to be at peace with us. It does not work that way. And it is the third level of spiritual warfare. How many of you are saying to me this morning, Pastor, how is this good news? How is this good news? Remember what I said earlier? There are three levels, stages of war. There's the declaration of war. There is the hostility of war. What's the last stage? The victory of war. The victory of war. And thirdly, Christ wins the war with Satan. Notice what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, notice this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want you to follow me very carefully for just a moment here. There was a, Greek, uh, a group of Jewish scholars around 250 B.C. They translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. It took them about 70 years to complete the process, and that translation is now called the Septuagint, which is the Greek word for 70. When they got to the word offspring here in Genesis chapter 3, they used a Greek neuter noun, the word sperma, which is a neuter noun in Greek that means offspring. You know what the pronoun after a neuter noun should be? Should be it. Because in Greek, the pronoun has to match the noun in its gender, so it should read, it shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise its heel. 
But the Jewish translators broke the grammar. They used a masculine pronoun, he, which is against grammar. And so what this is teaching us is 250 years before Christ ever came, the Jews were clearly saying this is a prophecy of the coming of Christ and He is the one who is going to bruise Satan's head while Satan is going to try to bruise his heel. The Jewish people saw this as the first prophecy of the coming of Christ. How many of you think the New Testament has something to say about this? Read it with me. Romans 16.20. Let's read it together. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And all God's people said, Amen. Now how does Christ do it? Verse 15 is describing simultaneous action. They both happen at the same time. To strike someone's heel is painful, but it's not fatal. You know, a couple of years ago, my wife had a very severe case of plantar fasciitis. Very painful. Praise God, today she's over it. And she has no more pain. So to strike somebody on the heel is painful, but it's not fatal. But to crush somebody's head, that's not only painful, that is fatal. When did Satan inflict a painful wound on Christ, but simultaneously was defeated by Christ at the very same time? When? Yeah. At the cross. Christ suffered in agony on the cross, but He rose again. And when He did, He took the power of death from Satan by dying for sin and rising again for eternal life. And though He suffered in agony and died, at the very same time, He crushed the head of Satan as he took away his two greatest weapons, the weapon of sin and the weapon of death. Here's what Jesus said as he anticipated the cross in John 12, verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And there's only one way these two simultaneous prophecies can be fulfilled. Jesus being bruised in his heel Satan being crushed in his head only one way. The cross and the resurrection. What an amazing, amazing prophecy this is. Do you know there are two points here that we need to be very careful that we get? Two amazing truths that we must see and rejoice in because today is the candle 
of joy. Here's the first one. When will this curse be lifted from the serpent? What's the answer? Never. There is no hope for Satan and his demons. By the way, one of our children, one of our very, very delightful children several years ago said to me, Pastor, if Satan asked for forgiveness, would God forgive him? What a, what a question out of a child. And um, I thought, well, somebody smarter than I must have written an answer on that one. But you know what the answer is? The answer is no. Because Satan and the angels do not have a Savior who died and rose for them. And God could not forgive Satan because he would be unjust. So Satan and his angels have no hope of redemption. But God can forgive us because He is just in what He did when He punished Christ on the cross. By the way, do you know, when Isaiah describes the coming kingdom that Jesus is going to uh, rule over, this is what he says. He says that the uh, wolf and uh, the lamb are going to lie down together. And he says the lion is going to eat straw next to the ox. But then he says this. The, Satan, uh, the serpent's food will still be dust. I want you to think about that. The kingdom that Jesus establishes is the time in which He removes the curse from this world. And so we end up with the wolf and the lamb laying down together and the lion and the oxen eating a straw together, but the serpent will continue to eat dust because when Jesus comes again, the curse will be lifted from all creation except serpents, showing us there is no hope for Satan and his demons. Notice the second point we dare not miss. No similar curse is uttered against the man and the woman. Did you see that? The ground is cursed, verse 17. The serpent is cursed, verse 14. But not the people. Why is this? Because with the coming of Christ, there is the hope that the curse will be lifted. Do you know this is the answer to why there is a hell? One of the struggles that people have is, why is there hell? If, if God is a God of love, why does He send people to hell? And many people stumble over the message of the gospel because there is a hell. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 25, 41. The eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. God never intended for people to go to hell. Only Satan was cursed forever. C.S. Lewis was exactly right when he said this. God sends no one to hell. They send themselves. And that's exactly right. 
Because humanity joined Satan in his rebellion, we have joined Satan's side. And God in His justice had to create a place where Satan and his demons would be punished forever. And if we continue in that rebellion with Satan, we are simply assigning ourselves to hell. We choose to go there. But here's the great news of the gospel. By receiving the salvation of Jesus Christ, we exchange the eternal curse for eternal life. That's the great news of the gospel. By receiving the salvation that Jesus Christ came to give, we exchange the eternal curse for eternal life. What are these candles all about? Hope, peace, what's the candle today? Joy, joy, joy. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. As we are before the Lord for a quiet moment, this is the true meaning of Christmas. The true meaning. And this is what the world is so ignorant of. And the only place that we get the true meaning of Christmas and understand the true reason why there is hope and peace and joy is when we come to the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And we see that Jesus is not someone who somehow sprung up in the middle of history and has now begun a brand new religion, but instead we see that this was God's plan. From the very beginning. And Jesus came in the fullness of time and was born of a woman into a war zone that he might set the captives free. And I don't know if you have been set free today or not. You may be a person who has never been in church. Or you might be someone who has been in church your whole life. But the message is that unless by a personal decision of your heart, you make a faith commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your rebellion underneath the leadership of Satan to the Savior who died for you and rose again for you, that one day you might live in a cursed free earth and then one day enter into the new heavens and the new earth. This is the day you need to make that decision. And you can say, Lord, I know that I've been in rebellion against you. I know my sinful heart. And this very day I turn from my way from Satan's way, 
and I turn to you. I believe, Jesus, that you were more than a baby in a manger. I, I believe that you were the eternal God who became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. I ask you to come into my life and be my Savior. I trust you to come into my heart and be my Lord. I call upon you to forgive all of my sins and to give me eternal life. I ask that you would make me a child of God. And Lord, from this day forward, knowing that I will not live this Christian life perfectly, yet with all my heart, I now will desire to follow you. You may say, thank you, Lord Jesus for saving me, and now teach me what it means to be your servant, your witness, and your man or woman of God. Savior, today we rejoice in you. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. And his heel was bruised on the cross. But by his resurrection, he crushed the head of Satan. And he is a defeated foe. And we are experiencing victory in the spiritual warfare until the Savior comes again. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen.